You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our series called Jesus and Women, presented by Julie Coleman, author, teacher, and member of New Hope Chapel's teaching team. Remember this guy? Kermit the Frog. Or he would say, Kermit the Frog. (laughs) Um, We all loved Kermit. My kids loved him growing up. One of his his, uh, most um, memorable moments was when he sang the song, It's not easy being green. Remember that? Well, if you were to talk to a first century woman, she would echo a similar kind of a sentiment. It's not easy being a woman. And um, I just want to share a little bit of background information with you before we get started on the specific story, because I think it will really help you to uh, contextualize um, what happened between Jesus and this woman, if you know a little bit about what a woman's typical life would be like. Now, about 150 years before Jesus was walking on the earth, um, the Greek, um, Greeks went and took, took over the world, and it was the Greek Empire, and they brought in the Hellenist society. Now, the Hellenists did not think, they had a lot of great accomplishments. They built beautiful buildings and had all kinds of philosophers and poetry and all that kind of stuff, mathematic advances, but they didn't think very much of women. Here's a quote from Aristotle. We should look upon the female state of being as though it were a deformity, uh, the one which occurs in the ordinary course of nature. So even though it's pretty common, really the best form is to be a man, but sometimes you have the deformity where you would be a woman. Women were given very few legal rights in Hellenistic society, and they were under their father's control and then their husband's for their entire lifetime. They couldn't travel without permission from their husband. Well, the Roman society came into being, and the Roman Empire, and they took over the Greek Empire, um, and they had a higher view of women. So around most of the world, um, things were changing a little bit. The oppression was easing up, except in Israel. Um, They continued to be regarded as greatly inferior. And, um, And I say this because there are several rabbinic writings that reveal kind of the attitude about women, and here's one of them. The attitude of man, he was a philosopher, the attitude of man is informed by reason, of woman by sensuality. See, women were thought of as um, lewd, and um, their their thoughts were led for promiscuity. They were um, very sensual creatures, and so, therefore, you need to stay away from them. And for this reason, a rabbi was forbidden to address a woman in public. Um, And so, uh, this is one... uh, quote out of the Mishnah. It was taught, do not speak excessively with a woman, lest this ultimately lead you to adultery. So just the fact that you would speak to a woman might cause you to just fall right over the edge, I guess. Um, As a matter of fact, there were a group of Pharisees that were called the bruised and bleeding. And the reason was, if they walked on the marketplace and they spotted a woman, if they made visual contact with her, they would close their eyes so they wouldn't have to see her and subsequently walk into walls. And so they were called the bruised and the bleeding. (laughs) Women did not receive any formal education, especially not the Torah. Here's another quote from a rabbi. Rather should the words of the Torah be burned than to be entrusted to a woman. I'm not sure they would like me going to seminary too much, but... See there, rabbis. Okay, so a woman had no option of initiating divorce. Now, a man could divorce her for burning his toast, but she could not initiate divorce for any reason, even 
um, in the face of abuse or um, anything like that. And there was every single day of a Jewish man's life a prayer that he uttered. And he thanked God that he wasn't several things, a Gentile, a this, or that, or a woman. So it was just, it was a very tough time to be a woman alive in that society back then. Um, well, where did all this oppression come from? Why would people feel it was permissible? It's very offensive to us today, but what, why would it be permissible back then? Well, you really have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Because, you see, God created women and man equal and in a partnership. As a matter of fact, this is what Adam said when he first got a sight of Eve. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is someone I can share my life with and we can, we can work together and, and, and do all these things in the garden. And he was thrilled with it. But, alas, the fall came. And Adam and Eve chose to sin. And in that moment... Not only did their relationship with God change, the relationship with each other changed. And now, one of the consequences was this to the woman. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So part of the sin, a part of the consequences of sin, was this now hierarchy of position. But don't get too swift on their round. Juan's over there nudging poor Andrea. There's good news, Andrea. <laughs> You can tell he's not married. <laughs> Otherwise, he wouldn't have dared to do that. <laughs> Jesus came to set them free. Not only free from the power of sin, but free from the power of the consequences of sin. And he came to restore woman to her original um, place as God had put her at the beginning. Well, the women of this first century weren't so different than women of today, were they? <laughs> they struggled with a need for significance. They struggled with a need to be loved, just like we do today. They forged their way in this world, fulfilling their responsibilities and trying to make their lives count for something. So we can learn a lot about Jesus' conversations with women, and we're going to be doing that. Things that apply to all of us today, and not just women either. Um, don't worry, there's going to be plenty here for the men as well, because all scripture is profitable and life-changing. So we're going to take a minute and just view this passage today with Jesus' encounter with the hemorrhaging woman. Let's pray before we take a look at this passage together. Heavenly Father, I thank you. We all thank you for this beautiful story of a woman who was so desperate and ill and needed help and how Jesus restored her, not only her physical body, but restored her to a relationship with God that would last for eternity. Lord, we ask your help as we look at these words. Help me, God, not to stand in the way, but to just be able to put your truth out there so that you can take your word and work it in people's hearts, and change our lives forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to thank my daughter, Melanie. She's the one that made that video for me. She did an awesome job. Um, uh, but I, I think it was, it's just a really powerful story. But I had some questions as I read this story. 
um, and, and thought about what exactly was going on here. So I thought I would share some of the things that I came up with with you. What was the woman's problem? You talk about uh, somebody called, one translation calls it an issue of blood. Somebody else calls it a hemorrhage. You know, what was it? What, where was she bleeding from? Like, what was all this thing? Well, her condition was known today, it would be known today as menorrhagia. Um, she suffered virtually continuous menstrual bleeding for 12 years. 12 years. Now, we women know that five days a month is plenty. This went on for 12 years for her. And so it would have affected her in many ways. First would be the physical symptoms that would um, have happened. Um, she would, it would have included muscle cramps, dizziness, fainting, fatigue. And any kind of physical exertion would have resulted in a shortness of breath, rapid heartbeat, or even chest pain. Even her complexion would have been altered. She would have been wan and colorless. I had a friend that I taught with several years ago that um, actually had this condition. She ended up getting a hysterectomy for it. But in the days before the hysterectomy, um, she was teaching school with me, and, she, and I said, you know, how's it going? She looked terrible all the time, just real, just white and uh, a little bit sweaty, just looked awful all the time. She said, you know, it's so exhausting. Now, she was a wife of a, a pastor of a large church, so not only was she teaching middle schoolers all day, which is enough for anybody, but then she uh, would go home at night and be a pastor's wife. She was a mother to three. There was a lot going on in her life. Well, anyway, she, um, she told me, I am so exhausted, I can't hardly function. She said, I, when I lift the chalk up to write on the board, my arms ache so badly I can barely do it. And that was the kind of um, affliction that this woman had as well. But, of course, she had no um, relief. Besides physical symptoms, she also, oops, there it is, financial ruin. Um, doctors' superstitious remedies were wholly ineffectual. Now, here's some of the remedies that they would have offered her. Um, carry around the ashes of an ostrich egg wrapped in a rag. Now, where the heck do you find an ostrich egg? <laughs> and it was a certain kind of rag, too. Another remedy was this. Carry a barley corn husk, which had been found in the excrement of a white female donkey. Those were the kinds of things. They had powders to drink and all kinds of solutions. None of them were effectual. And so she spent, it says in Mark, all that she had and was not helped at all. So she was in financial ruin. She was destitute. Okay, another thing she, that, that would have affected her is that she would have been socially ostracized. You see, um, in Leviticus, it's very clear. It says, if a woman has a discharge of her blood many days, not at the period of her menstrual impurity, she is unclean. And everything on which she sits is unclean. And it goes on to say, any bed which she lies on all the days of her discharge and everything on which she sits will be unclean. Well, the problem was that is that other people sat on those same things too. And in Leviticus 5 it says, if someone touches human uncleanliness, he will be guilty. So just by touching something that she had touched or sat upon or laid on, you would become ceremonially unclean. And that was a big pain in the neck, because then you had to go and, and get restored to cleanliness and had to go through this ritual bathing and things like that. So it wouldn't be something you'd want to have to do regularly. Well, so if that was the case, it was probably known in the community that she was unclean. Um, a lot of times they would refer to people like that as sinners. 
even though, you know, she wasn't guilty of anything terrible, but she, she was known as a sinner because of her uncleanliness. So she would have been socially ostracized. So she'd lived 12 long years in lonely isolation. And she was also banned from the synagogue in her state of uncleanliness. Couldn't go to the synagogue. So not only was she being abandoned by man, but it probably felt like she'd been abandoned by God as well. It was a lonely, terrible existence. So it's small wonder that she would be willing to risk touching Jesus and therefore making him unclean in the hope that maybe, just maybe, he could heal her from her affliction. So she waits for him to pass her by. And as she waits and seeing him coming, all of a sudden the crowd stops and out comes Jairus. Now Jairus was a very important man in the city. He was a ruler in the synagogue. He was... Uh, very respected, um, financially well-off, and he was an important man. And so everything stops, and Jairus pleads, Jesus, please, come to my house. My 12-year-old girl is dying, and I, I know you can save her. Please come. And Jesus agrees. He'll come to the house. He'll heal the daughter. So he's on his way, and he's walking toward her. She's a nobody. She has no right. She's unclean. And she sees him coming, but she stretches her hand out in the crowd. Some hole gets a hold of part of his garment, and immediately she is healed. And as she stood there, stunned, and they continued to go by, that feeling came over her because, remember now, she had all these physical symptoms, gone, and she's standing whole and healthy and just took her breath away, and as she stood there, all of a sudden the crowd stops. And Jesus turns around, and he says those fateful words, Who touched me? Who touched me? Well, you have to wonder. There must have been people in that crowd that were also reaching out and touching him, right? And so, um, as a matter of fact, there were some notions that went on, kind of quasi-magical notions, that the garment or that somebody that wore that had power... If you touch that garment, you could be healed. So I'm sure, or at least get a blessing. And so all these people were reaching out, touching him, touching him as he went by. And then he turns around and says, who touched me? The disciples look at him and said, are you kidding? Who didn't touch you? What are you doing? What are you talking about? So why wasn't everyone else healed when they touched him? If they're all, you know, whatever their reasons were for touching him, there must have been people in the crowd that were looking for a healing also. And they were touching his garment. Well, why didn't he heal them? Why, why was it that just that one woman, nobody else stands up and goes, uh, me too. Nobody. Only one. Well, Jesus answers the question for us in part later on in the story because this is what he tells her. Your faith has made you well. Your faith, so that... Believing in Jesus, believing in his power, believing in his ability to heal her, believing in his goodness that he would want to heal her, all of those things that she believed as she thrust her hand out, those things opened a conduit for God's grace and mercy to pour into her and heal her from her affliction. But weren't other people maybe having faith in Jesus in the crowd? I would say yes. She couldn't have been the only one, right? So why didn't they get healed as well? We're not told that anybody else was healed. Well, some people might say, well, they didn't believe hard enough. You ever heard that line? 
if you have enough faith, then God will do it. Well, let me kind of reverse that for a little bit and let me get you to look at it a different way. That would mean that God would be at our mercy. That if we would say, I just be- if I believe hard enough, God has to do it for me. Well, I got news. God doesn't have to do anything. And he won't. <laughs> He's only going to do uh, what he knows is the best thing. He's not a genie in the bottle that we can call to our um, behest just because we have believed hard enough. And that's a really bad thing to start thinking. We're so limited in our scope of understanding. We don't get the big picture. We see our present circumstances around us. And a lot of times we try to like, decide why God did what he did. You know, we all play that game, right? And sometimes we're on the money, and sometimes we're probably way off. (laughs) But in any case, God has the big picture in mind, and he knows what needs to be accomplished, and he knows how he needs to be glorified. And so he's going to act consistently for that, but also use our circumstances for our good at the same time. It's just amazing um, what he's able to do, but accomplishing what needs to be done. Deuteronomy reminds us, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Secret things, things that we can't understand. In Isaiah, he says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. He's letting us know, you're pretty smart people, but you're no God. (laughs) And you're not going to understand everything I do all at once. But the point is, we can trust God all the time, because we can trust in his goodness, we can trust in his power and his control of all of our circumstances, which means that we're not, he's not always going to be doing what we want and when we want it. We have to look beyond the circumstances for the circumstance maker. And that's exactly what I think was going on here. So the second question that begs to be asked is this. Why did Jesus call her out? Now, this was an embarrassing illness. This is not something you just talk about publicly. I mean, those of us who are old enough to remember, commercials didn't used to have the kinds of things that are going on now and on TV. And sometimes I look at commercials and go, wow, I can remember when the lady was wearing the 36-hour Playtex bra outside of her clothing. <laughs> and now they're talking about all kinds of personal things on TV. But back then, this just wasn't discussed. And so Jesus calls her out, and he wants to know, what, you know you, who healed me? What was going on? What was your illness? And this would be a very embarrassing thing for the woman. Plus, you've got the problem of her having made him unclean, which I think is why she responds in such fear and trembling. You know, she's about to admit, um, yes, I'm unclean, and I just made you unclean in front of, oh, a crowd of people. So it was a very embarrassing thing. Why did he call her out? Well, I think there's several reasons. The first is this. His intention was to make her whole. She would have walked away gladly from him healing her physical problem. But Jesus wanted more for her. He wanted to make her whole in every way. And so he couldn't just walk away and leave her as she was. Second thing is that she might have had misconceptions. She knew as she thrust her arm through that crowd that she was going to make him unclean. She was going to contaminate him. But he set her straight with these words. Go in peace. You don't need to feel guilty about this at all. Guilt had no place in her healing. Rather than her make him unclean, he made her clean. And he wanted her to know that. He also used it um, to verify her healing and declare her clean to the community. He wanted to end her 12 years 
of social banishment. And so she could now return to the synagogue and resume her relationships with people. And no longer anyone had to avoid contact. She didn't have the cooties anymore. And so she didn't, nobody had to do that. She was to be received and restored to her community. She was actually, he was giving her an opportunity to be declared clean in front of everyone, in front of her whole town. So it wasn't an embarrassment. It was actually a gift. And lastly, not only did he declare her clean to the crowd, but Jesus took the opportunity to publicly commend her faith. He was letting them know her faith was the reason that, that God had chosen to heal her. And that was a really important because, remember I told you, these magical notions that went on that the garment held some kind of special power. He didn't want anyone to mistake that it was her faith that had released God's power and God had done the healing. So it wasn't really about a garment or touching him. It was about believing in him. And he wanted to get that point across. So I think that's probably why he stopped and, commend, and, and stopped her at that point. So what does this encounter mean for us today? Well, each of the three synoptic gospels includes this account. Matthew, Mark, Luke. All include the account. And they all include Jairus and his sick daughter mingled in with her story like this. And it's all mingled together. So I kept looking at the two and thinking, why are they so, besides the fact that, you know, they happened at the same time period, but there were things about the story that really made me think that this was a very purposeful thing that the gospel writers were doing. And so I started comparing some of the things that they told about Jairus' daughter's situation and about the woman's situation that completely parallel each other. And I made this little chart. The first thing is, is that both people fell at Jesus' feet. Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet. The woman came and fell down before him. So that's one thing they had in common. The second is they were both in terrible trouble. They were facing life and death situations. Jairus told Jesus, my little daughter is at the point of death. And they tell us about the hemorrhaging woman that she had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had grown worse. Now here's another kicker. The little girl, 12 years old. The woman had been bleeding for 12 years. That's huge. Then touch was very integral to each of the healings. Uh, when Jesus got to the uh, child's house, he, she was already dead, and, he, and it says he took the child by the hand. Again, something that would have made him unclean because he would be touching a corpse, which was a no-no. But yet, Touch, he touched her, and then, of course, with the woman. If I just touch his garments, I'll get well. So touch was very integral. Okay, then Jairus' daughter had an immediate, and, and the woman had immediate healing. It was instantaneous, and it was complete. It says immediately girl, the girl got up and began to walk, and the hemorrhaging woman, it says, she felt in her body and was healed of her affliction. So it was immediate and complete. Um, another part I noticed was that there was a lot of fear in both people. And Jairus, he's, uh, they tell him, your daughter is dead, as he continues on. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, or don't be afraid any longer, just believe. And the woman, when Jesus stops and turns around, says she went to him fearing and trembling. So there's fear there as part of the story. And then, of course, the remedy of that fear was the faith, only believe. And he told the woman, your faith has made you well. And finally, both of these people, the Jairus' daughter and the woman, 
were referred to as daughter. The Jairus says, my little daughter, and he explains about her 12-year-old daughter. And then Jesus calls her daughter. Daughter, your faith has made you well. It's that last similarity, that they were both daughters, that I found to be most significant. You know, as the woman stood there and listened to Jairus plead for his daughter's life, I wonder what she was thinking. First of all, she hears that the daughter is 12 years old. Now, surely that number must have kicked something in her. 12? Really? That's how long I've been bleeding. She's been alive as long as I've been bleeding. 12 years. And then she started listening to Jairus plead for his daughter's life. And I wonder, might she have compared her situation with Jairus' daughter, just like we did? Might she have stood there and listened to this father plead, plead for the life of his child, falling at Jesus' feet, important man in the city, synagogue ruler. And I think about her standing alone in the crowd. You know, her affliction would have um, given grounds for divorce because there could be no sexual relations with her. So we don't know if she was married. We don't know what her family situation was, but it sure doesn't mention anybody else that was with her at the time. I believe she was standing in that crowd, that unsympathetic crowd, not even wanting to go near her, alone. And yet she hears Jairus pleading. He loves his daughter. She's everything to him. And I wonder if she thought to herself, what would it be like to be the daughter of this important man who's well off and not financially destitute like I am, who loves his daughter more than he loves his life? Well, I stand here alone, afraid to touch anyone in the crowd, can't go to synagogue, can't have relationships with people, what would it be like to be her? Then Jesus turns around. He scans the crowd. He picks her out. And he calls her daughter. Now, I was curious when I read that. How often does Jesus address people as daughter? He talked to a lot of women. And I've been studying all these stories, so I did a search. He only calls one person daughter in all of the Gospels, and it's her. It's the only time he uses his personal address in the Gospels. It might not have meant a lot to people in the crowd, but it meant everything to her. Because now she was someone's daughter. She'd been adopted by the king of kings. Her father was much more important than a synagogue ruler. Her father ruled the universe. She might be financially destitute, but her father's wealth exceeded everyone's. She was loved more passionately by her father than that little girl could ever have dreamed. And his commitment to her would last for eternity. That's the kind of relationship her physical healing was just the beginning. So hearing him call her daughter that address was a life-changing moment for her. But you know what? He offers the same to us. The same relationship. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, says this, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance. At the moment of your salvation, you were declared a son or a daughter of the king of kings. And with that comes an inheritance. 
It's an adoption. It's a beautiful picture of this new relationship that we have with God. An unbreakable family tie has already been made. I have a friend who adopted a little girl from Russia several years ago. Actually, the little girl's like 17 now, so it was quite some time ago. She was four at the time. And her mother had died, and um, she was living in an orphanage for about a year. And my uh, friend had gotten some money, inheritance money from her dad, and they had decided they'd never had a girl and they wanted to adopt. So they made arrangements and found out about this little girl, and they went over to visit her. Her name was Jana. And so they went over to get the paperwork started in Russia. And, of course, with international adoptions, a lot of paperwork, a lot of uh, governmental things that you have to, hoops you have to jump through. But they did get to go to the orphanage and meet the little girl, and they spent two days with her. Now, they didn't speak Russian. J Jack spoke some Russian, but um, the little girl didn't speak any English at all. So, but, you know, they didn't seem to have a lot of trouble communicating. And they played together out in the yard, and they had brought bubbles, and they blew bubbles, and they giggled, and they tickled, and they talked, and they, she got rides on her new daddy's back. And he spoke some Russian so that you were able to do some communicating. Daisy even brought a little scrapbook that had pictures of all of, she has uh, two brothers, um, and her grandparents, and her aunts and uncles, and, and she had their names under each one so that the little girl could learn who her fa new family was because they weren't going to be taking her home. They had to leave her there, go home, and wait for the Russian officials to go through all of their stuff and then call them back to Russia. So the day that they had to leave, they were heartbroken. How do you explain to this little girl, we're coming back. We're not abandoning you. We love you. We want, we're, you're part of our family already, but you have to wait until the government tells us we can go home. And so they left her. And in those months that they waited for the government to finish up the paperwork. My friend said, oh, I'm so afraid. I, I don't think she'll forget us. I said, she's not going to forget you. <laughs> she said, but I'm so afraid when we get there, she's not going to want to come. Leave everything familiar to her. She's been at that orphanage for a year. What if she doesn't want us? And so the, the word finally came. Daisy and Jack packed their bags and went to Russia. And they arrived there and got to the, as they were driving to the orphanage way out in the middle of nowhere, they were praying and just hoping that this little girl would love them and still want to be with them. And so as they got out of the car, the door of the orphanage flung open, and there stood little Jana and said, Mama, Papa, and went running. <laughs> and the three of them just cried and just were so thankful. And yes, she came home with them. <laughs> and she's a healthy, wonderful girl, just getting out of high school now and doing great. But, you know, I thought as I listened to that story, my friend Deza, my dear friend, <laughs> like most adoptions, we were adopted to God's family, and ours came at a great price. Our Heavenly Father had to pay a debt in order to welcome us into his family so we could be legally his. We were in slavery to sin, and his payment set us free and enabled us to become a part of his family. So Paul could say to the Galatians, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. My kids are looking at uh, houses this weekend, one, one, one family out of our family. And um, they've discovered that a house on the real estate market, the value is pretty much determined by how much someone is willing to pay for it. Well, we could say the same about ourselves. God shelled out an exorbitant price. The blood of his precious son. He was willing to pay that price to adopt us into his family. He calls us sons 
and daughters. The truth of that and what it implies should overwhelm us, just as it overwhelmed that hemorrhaging woman so many years ago. Like her, for us, his healing goes beyond what we could have even thought to have asked. He's taken our guilt, he's washed us clean of its contamination, and our status has undergone a complete reversal. We're heirs to an amazing inheritance as adopted daughters and sons of the king, and not one part of our lives remains unchanged. You know, after informing the woman of her status, daughter, Jesus told her one more thing. He said, now go in peace. For the first time in her life, she could do just that. Meeting Jesus and believing in him changed everything. The peace that he gives us is a sense of well-being that can only come from a personal relationship with God. No longer do we have to fear him, fear our inadequacies, fear our weaknesses, fear our sin. They're a non-issue between us and him. And through his mercy and grace, we can live our lives on earth with the presence of God as a constant, reassuring thing, and we live with a hope for future and eternity. Like the hemorrhaging woman, our healing is complete as well. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.